Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Daisy Verduzco Reyes. Dr. Verduzco Reyes is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology in El Instituto, the Institute of Latina, Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies at the University of Connecticut. She is author of Learning to be Latino, How Colleges Shape Identity Politics. Dr. Reyes is the proud daughter of Mexican immigrants and is a first-generation college graduate. She grew up on the east side of the San Fernando Valley in California. We're so glad that you're here at Ohio State, Daisy. Bienvenida. Thank you for having me. Daisy, talk to us about growing up in California. So I grew up in a predominant Latino community in the San Fernando Valley, mm -hmm. which is the considered like the valley. You know that movie, The Valley Girl mm -hmm. from yes. the 80s? <laughs> yes. But I emphasize that I'm from the east side because that's the side where um, it's more, it's lower income mm -hmm. and Um, it's changing now. Mm -hmm. Lots of L.A. is changing now. Mm -hmm. um, but growing up, it was a predominantly Latino. I think now it's still about 70% Latino. Mm -hmm. um, but the people that I grew up around were primarily children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And uh, I attended Catholic school from mm -hmm. K through 12, mm -hmm. at 12th grade. And I, I went to school in Pacoima which is a Mexican immigrant community historically. Mm -hmm. And I would say that 90% of my peers were children of Mexican immigrants. Mm -hmm. And actually recalling my classmates who I thought were white, I actually now know that they were like third generation Mexican oh. Americans. <laughs> But in my mind as a child, they were white because they didn't speak Spanish. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, so very, very much a Mexican immigrant experience, mm -hmm. um, you know, that meant that there was a paletero mm -hmm. and elotero mm -hmm. everywhere, okay. <laughs> everywhere you could, you know, those are the sounds of my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic school that I attended for high school was about 50% Filipino. So that like sort of was the, the diversity that I was used to before mm -hmm. I went off to college. And Los Angeles is pretty segregated. So although there were white people on the other side of the valley, I never interacted with white people um, when I was a kid. And so my first real experiences interacting with white people um, happened in college. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's just sort of the nature of, like, you know, segregated city. Right. Yeah. So you grew up um, speaking Spanish at the, at the uh, school where you went. Was there, I don't know, bilingual education or a type of bilingual uh, or Spanish integration throughout the curriculum? Right. So I grew up speaking Spanish. When I started kindergarten, I didn't speak Spanish, English. English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My mom always tells tell a story that um, she got a call from the teacher and the teacher was like, I think there's something wrong developmentally with your daughter. <laughs> and my mom's like, she doesn't speak English. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's what you mean. And they, they were like, oh, she doesn't speak English. So um, but, you know, there was no bilingual education mm -hmm. Even though most of us were children of immigrants, mm -hmm. there was nothing in the curriculum that sort of addressed us as Mexican-Americans, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I had no formal education. I had what's the erasure, right? Like the, the <laughs> academic right. erasure of the language. Right. Um, What and about your teachers? Were your teachers Latina or Latino? I think I had a Latina teacher in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a Latina teacher in kindergarten. 
kindergarten. Mm-hmm. But, like, I didn't know that they were. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't sort of, like, integrate it in our education. And then in high school, I didn't have any Latino. I had one teacher who was Latino because his name is Galarza. Mm-hmm. But he never sort of made that part of his identity, like, like important. So mm-hmm. I didn't know that about him either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no. So there was nothing about my education that was, like, Latino-focused. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Catholic school that I went through from K through eighth, like since there were so many Mexican immigrants, like, you know, the church was Mexican, mm-hmm. um, sort of like um, Mexican culture was really represented in terms of like the fair, mm-hmm. you know, like the foods that were represented and mm-hmm. things like that, but nothing in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was your transition then to Hartford, Connecticut? Because you grew up in California, you went to K through 20 mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, in the California education system. And, and then you moved all the way to the East Coast. Right. So um, I think grad school sort of helped me transition a little bit because despite the University of California, Irvine, being in Orange County, very close to the city of Santana, which is like a traditionally Mexican immigrant um, city, uh, there were very few of us Latino students in the grad program. So when I started, there were 80 um, Latino PhD students in sociology and only three were Latino. Mm-hmm. So I had already had an introduction to like being the only one in the room. And so that stuff um, was stuff I was used to. But I was also in California. So like at the time we had like, you know, Latino mayor, um, there mm-hmm. are representatives. So I sort of had exposure to Latino power mm-hmm. and examples. Um, and I mention all this because I think that's an important part of like having, you know, grown up as a kid and a scholar, mm-hmm. um, there was Chicano studies departments in both schools that I attended. So that means that there were senior Chicano studies professors. Mm-hmm. And so I say this because I carry that with me. And what that means is that um, I feel like strong enough to like be in a place like Hartford uh, at the University of Connecticut and Mm -hmm. be sometimes the only one in the room. I met a professor at a conference and he told me that they were very racist to him and his first job. It was really bad. Like they, the students were really racist and he left. Mm -hmm. And now he advises students, his students, and he tells them never to take jobs at predominantly white spaces. Like that's his to go advice. Mm -hmm. And when he said that to me, I, I told him, I don't think it's a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. I actually feel like because of my rearing in California and I had so many like examples of like senior faculty um, and representation, I feel like it's my job now. I'm strong enough. I'm not sacrificing myself because mm-hmm. I feel healthy enough mm-hmm. to be the brown body mm-hmm. that students see. For the first time, some of my white students have probably never met a Latino professional in their life. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's sort of like the way I think about it. But when I first got to Hartford, there were no tortillas. <laughs> like uh, we went, my sister and I went to the grocery store and they were like, tortillas, they didn't have any. They showed us none. Mm-hmm. They didn't know oh, that really? it was it was like <laughs> what a tortilla was. But it's been <laughs> shifting so much. And now I can buy tortillas in Connecticut. I can find most things. I still can't find like good queso. Yeah. Um, so I used to come like home for the holidays from LA, like with a suitcase full of full stuff, of food. but yeah, not good. anymore because I can find most things now because things are changing. But something similar is happening too because yeah. with my mom, um, you know, I grew up in Mexico, but um, my family is Salvadoran, mm-hmm. and um, and whenever I went to Texas, um, 
there were some Salvadoran stores, so mm-hmm. she would get me some products to make my Salvadoran turkey. Yeah. And, um, and now I'm like, no, I'm good. I can find things here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, little by little, right, you start seeing um, those products or stores coming into to the neighborhood. Uh, so you say you are a first-generation college student but attended uh, college in California. How was your experience as a Latina in higher education different or the same from those students that you observed in your book? Uh, and, I'm, and I'm referring to, to your book that just came out um, in September, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, Learning to be Latino, How Colleges Shape uh, Identity Politics. So I would say, because my book profiles the experiences of Latino students in three different types of colleges in California, a research one public institution, a four-year public research, regional public university, Mm -hmm. and then a private liberal arts college. I would say that my experience is pretty similar to the students of the research one state school. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the same experience they did as sort of like lots of culture shock and feelings of marginalization and feeling like anonymous on such a big campus. And I sort of did the same thing that the students in my study did, which is try to find a community. Um, And there were sort of some divisions amongst my peers, which is what I found in my study at the research university. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like questions about who's Latino enough and those kinds of things. And those things are things I profiled in in that one campus. Mm -hmm. So similar. Yeah. Yesterday at your talk, you you mentioned um, something that always um, I always try to think about. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, in that some uh, one of these institutions, I I forget which one, maybe the research one, um, that was primarily commuter, a commuter campus, and I was a commuter. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to OSU, but um, I never got involved. I didn't know where the union was, <laughs> right? And you found this, and some of the students, like yeah. you know, they come, and that was mine, right? I came to my building, to my classes, and left uh, for work. And um, and sometimes I wonder if if I if if that uh, what my experience would have been like had I been a more traditional student. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that because of that, I have some other very valuable experiences. And at the same time, I want to provide students with that knowledge, right? Of like connecting and not just to an, um, an organization, but also to professors and to people that um, that they can see are invested in their education and their and their success. Um, so I, that just um, um, st- stuck out yesterday when you were talking about yeah, those that, commuter students. That was the regional public school, right. okay. which is an HSI as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that, yeah. And, you know, that's a really common experience. Like we often talk about the college experience, the modal college experience as a student who lives on the campus, right? But it's becoming increasingly more common to be a commuter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's important, I think, to highlight what that experience is like. Right. It's also, in some ways, a more affordable experience. Absolutely. I talk about that, too. You know, um, how much debt do you want after college, right? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Did you observe any hostile environments during your research work, Um, you know, in the institutions? And it could be in maybe between students or maybe um, uh, staff or faculty. Um, Were there things that you observed that you thought, okay, this needs to be done differently? Yeah, so I would say that um, in terms of things that I found problematic or um, 
you know, like hostile. Mm -hmm. I would say that the only place where students talked about hostility was at the elite liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And those were moments of like microaggressions and interactions with like non-Latino peers that, you know, sometimes things would happen and they would say things like a student, you know, I detailed the story yesterday with a, a student who had an issue with the director of a garden mm -hmm. who then accused her of like, you know, intending to sell the oranges on the street and things mm -hmm. like that. And that was like a, I would say that's the most egregious um, case that students reported. Um, and of course I would make recommendations to that school mm -hmm. that there should be some education about sort of um, microaggressions mm -hmm. and, and it shouldn't just be the job of underrepresented um, students right. to educate, educate <laughs> their peers about stuff like this and faculty and staff, right? It should be something that the university provides or the, the college provides. Um, so that those are the kinds of things that I, that I was thinking about when I was at the liberal arts college. Uh, while I was at the research university, I thought a lot about like, what was the university doing to help foster some of the tensions between students? And some of that was about distribution of resources. Mm -hmm. And so I would, you know, think that and recommend that that university think about how they're distributing resources amongst Latino students and maybe make it a way so they're not, you know, fostering competition between students, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> We typically think of Latino and Latina student organizations or perhaps even Greek life as places where students can get support, where they can find compañerismo and emotional care, which means they primarily interact with peers and staff. But what is the role of faculty across universities? So I think that faculty have a really important role to play. And as a faculty member myself at a big research university, I would say that the kinds of interactions I have with students it, are the kinds of interactions that are sort of cultivated at a place like that, which what I mean by that is students aren't used to having inter interactions outside the classroom with faculty. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even the interactions in the classroom are just like s structured in one particular way, mm -hmm. right? I teach, you learn, mm -hmm. I give you a grade, bye. <laughs> and the students don't come see me in office hours mm -hmm. and we don't create a relationship, right? So I don't, I sometimes think about it and I don't blame students mm -hmm. because the students haven't come to expect more of their, like their faculty. And sometimes they understand, oh, they're at a research institution, they're here for their research. Mm -hmm. And so when I try to break that mold for them, sometimes they're like disoriented, right? <laughs> so because of my research, I always address that the first days of class mm -hmm. because I actually study higher ed. Mm -hmm. So I tell them like, look, I understand you're at a research institution, but it's important that you get to know faculty because you're going to need letters of rec later. You never know like who we may be connected to that we can help you in your, in your future. Mm -hmm. And um, students are uncomfortable because sometimes they want to be anonymous. They're used to being anonymous mm -hmm. in a big class. Um, so I think our role is super important. And I, I compare it to the liberal arts experience where these students like come to really know the faculty. The faculty know about their lives. They're invested in their futures. They like, you know, guide them through the process of getting into like PhD programs, et cetera. And the, their jobs are sort of structured that way, mm -hmm. that school values that part of their job. Mm -hmm. A place like UConn, a research university, doesn't sort of cultivate that 
as part of our job, it doesn't sort of have a reward structure for it. And so it doesn't happen as much. But so after doing my research, what I would really push students to do is to try to create what you get at a liberal arts college in any context, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the benefits of a liberal arts college? All the attention that you get from faculty, right? Like the ability to like learn from experts, develop your thinking, and also the connections that they have. And I think it's possible to create that, but it's the students who have lots of cultural capital and social capital that know to do that mm -hmm. at schools like this, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really important and students really have to sort of be proactive to sort of seek that out. And then I would hope that's, that faculty are open and receptive. Mm -hmm. uh, that's funny that you say that. I briefly worked at a small liberal arts college, mm -hmm. and that was uh, certainly part of the culture. And um, when I came back to OSU, I sort of brought that with me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So most of my classes I conduct as if I, as if I was at that liberal arts college. I, I really emphasize getting to know my students. It doesn't always, always work. Like you said, they have a mindset, right, that this is our research university or that the professor, nobody has really taken the time to, and, and so they have this dissonance, right, and that is happening. What, why? She wants to get to know me? Why? Uh, you know, what is she talking about? Mm -hmm. um, so, it, it, you know, I, I feel like my students um, have a little bit of a different experience. And also because of the, the courses that I teach that have to do with community engagement. So that uh, lends itself to be a kind of different course. Um, so I take advantage of that. Um, I know that mentoring is key, and I have uh, three mentees, or I have us, like I like to uh, think of them, uh, who I connect with on a regular basis. Uh, do we need to do more to provide spaces where this is part of caring for our students? And you mentioned a little bit, you know, just reaching out to get uh, and encourage the students to come to talk to you for Um, networking or opportunities, et cetera. But what about mentoring that's a little more than just, you know, sharing knowledge or, mm -hmm. or networks? Yeah, I think that my answer is yes. We do need more um, spaces where mentoring relationships are cultivated and fostered. I would say that, you know, a lot of students, especially first-generation college-going need to know that we are accessible. And so um, I would say that I th I, I've learned a little bit about what you guys have at o in Ohio. Um, I just can speak to sort of the places where I've been. And mm -hmm. I know that when students have like a, there's a structured program in place for them to get mentorship from like professional staff uh, and some faculty play a role and then their peers. I think that that works really well. And, and I, I, I think there's like substantial research out there about it working. And I'm always in favor of creating more mentorship programs for our Latino students. Right, right. Um, there are many things a student needs to consider um, when choosing where to go to college, including majors, price, uh, location. And in an ideal world, Latino students can factor in how a university will support and understand their cultural identity, language, and values. What would you say is an ideal environment for Latino and Latina students and universities across our, our country? Oh, my gosh. That's such a big that's question. A big question. I know. That's a huge question. So I think the ideal 
if we could ever reach it, the ideal space for a Latino student is a place where they can be free. And what I mean by that is free to like express whatever parts of our, their identity that they want to. And for me, that space would have to have reached equity and representation. And what I mean by that is that the student no longer has to labor to create a home for themselves, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of times what we have on campuses is severe underrepresentation of Latinos in all levels, right? In faculty, staff, graduate students, administrators, and students. And when we have that, you have a constant sort of recreating of spaces and programs to try to create what feels like representation. Mm. And so a lot of Latino students and faculty and staff across the country are doing this labor all over the place mm -hmm. and redoing it. And what we've been doing it, what, for 30 years, probably? I mean, probably since like the civil rights movement. Right. Well, it's more than that now. Is it 50? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're there and we keep doing the same thing. And so there are places, I think, that have harnessed those programs and sort of like fostered them. Some campuses now have, you know, they have Latino studies departments that have been around since the late, like since 1969. They now, they have uh, retention centers. Mm -hmm. They have first generation college going centers. Mm -hmm. They have undocumented student centers, right? And to me, that's the ideal situation, right? Because now you have a student who walks on to campus and all of these resources are in place for them for wherever, whatever sort of thing they're feeling. And, if we then reach equity in representation relative to the population, then they no longer even have to occupy in their mind. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not represented, right? That's not something that is of concern while they're in college. Mm -hmm. Then they would be free to be whatever they want to be, right? They can be in chess club or, you know, whatever else thing that they, they might want to do. Right, right. Um, I have a, a question, and this relates to also the work that you do that you did at these three universities. And I want to ask this question because um, I, when I meet with students, my Latino students, I often ask, "Well, are you a part of any organization? What are you? Um, what are you doing?" Right. And I have some that say, you know, identify a couple of organizations. And, and then there are some that have this sort of reaction, like negative reaction, like, no, that's not for me. Or no, you know, just kind of uh, they don't want anything to do with it. Mm. Did you have some of those um, reactions from students across this three universities? And, and, and also, why, would you, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, so my work is primarily about students within organizations. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot of experience um, with the students that didn't join organizations. But um, I know at a place like the research university where there was tensions mm -hmm. between two groups, sometimes students were really off-put by that. Mm -hmm. um, they were really off-put by the idea that they would like be a part of those two groups. However, I have heard of students who, you know, they just don't feel like there's a salience in their Latino identity. And so, like, they don't need to be a part of an organization like that. And sometimes, you know, they find insult mm -hmm. with the sort of, like, assumption that they would want to join. Mm. Um, but I would say that those experiences are probably less than we might expect. I feel like those are outliers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Um, Daisy, who should read your book? 
So I wrote my book for students. When I was writing it, I wanted to make sure that it was accessible to students. I mean, I teach, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of what we write as academics is full of jargon. And it's really hard for undergrads to understand. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I didn't want to write that kind of book. Mm-hmm. I mean, my book is about Latino students. So mm-hmm. I wanted to write it for Latino students. Like I imagined like an intro to Latino studies class. A student reads this book and they're like, oh, my gosh. And it somehow helps them understand their experience in mm-hmm. college. Mm-hmm. But since writing it, I've found that like most college educated Latinos, it resonates somehow with mm-hmm. their story and it t- kind of takes them back, which is nice also. Um, and honestly, I really want administrators to read my book because I do offer a few solution or solution suggestions of how like to fix some of the problems that I saw at these different types of schools. And I want them to think about it. And they have power. So I'd like them to read it. Right. Daisy, <laughs> um, what, uh, what's next for you? What's the next project? So I'm really excited because I've been able to do interviews for my next book uh, this, this semester. And I have been interviewing 20, my goal is to interview 20 respondents from each of the campuses I studied for my book. So again, a research one, a regional public, and a elite liberal arts college. So these three campuses are in California, and I've been interviewing alumni. So some of them are alumni from my book, and some of them are just the friends of the people that um, were in my in my first book. They are now between the ages of 27 and 34 years old. And so it's a study about college-educated Latino millennials, mostly in California, and their trajectories to adulthood. So I have a lot of information about finances, um, how they're doing economically, their career choices, family formation, you know, housing, etc. And so far, you know, it's been a little like frustrating because what I've become acutely aware of is just the student loan bubble and the mm-hmm. crisis that we have about that and also mm-hmm. the housing crisis in California. And it's just frustrating to me that, you know, this is like the successful Latino, this is a, a successful segment of the Latino population, right? They have a college degree mm-hmm. and the amount of debt that this generation is carrying is it's just it's it's ridiculous and it's incredibly unfair and um i'm hoping it's a burden it's it's a really heavy burden and you know people are living their lives and this is the new normal and it's not fair Mm -hmm. it's not fair for this generation that generation to be carrying that Mm -hmm. and so I'm looking forward to finishing up the interviews. I've done 47 of 60 so far and write up about this and maybe become an economic sociologist, which I'm not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, Doctora Reyes, thank you for this wonderful research. And I look forward to continuing to read your book and uh, and the next and the next one. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for everything that you're doing um, also in Connecticut. Thank you for having me. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm-hmm.